Welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings, and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Gurney. I'm here with... Carlos Cooper. And Joe Hilliard. All right. <laughs> okay. Do you remember that SNL sketch that uh, yes, yes, was, yes, was yes, making yes, fun yes. of was making fun of Migos and they were like in therapy oh. and would like break into song and then Keenan Thompson's character was just like Lambo in yes, the back. Yeah, I think I'm yeah. gonna start doing that whenever either of you read the intro or like do the intro. Welcome, oh yeah. Welcome to beer in a movie. Movie. In the <laughs> so you're going to be our video joker to get to carry over from our yeah. old colleague yes yeah. exactly yeah. <laughs> i just uh i love the idea just thought about it while you were doing that nice first rabbit uh, hole yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad idea though and it's good to prep our uh, our audience for for these kind of innovations <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I feel like I need to get right into the beer this time because this is one that we've all been kind of excited about getting open. We were talking even before we started here about how how much we are anticipating this one. Uh, we, this is a revisit for us. Uh, the brewery is Drecker Brewing Company. They are out of Fargo, North Dakota. Um, so so they, they, I believe, are probably still our only North Dakota brewery, brewery that we have on the list um, that we visited. But this is their brains with many A's, uh, you know, very zombie evoking uh, can art. This is the passion fruit, orange and guava version of what they call their double fruit smoothie sour. Uh, is this the first smoothie sour that we've had on the podcast so far i don't recall one and i don't know if our amazing database has that level of yeah right micro data but i don't think we have i mean honestly i know I, I know i only have had maybe a couple of these myself and i believe they have not been on mic yeah. oh boy pour it all out because everybody be have their the bottom does everybody have their can open? Yes. Yeah. I got a problem, guys. We okay. have been gri <laughs> we have been griping about not having great beers to pair with certain movies. And David Gurney, who is the most generous man I've ever met, just gave Carlos and I, I don't know, like two cases of beer that he'd procured. It was like two six packs worth, yeah. Uh, I was going to try to fluff them up a little bit more than that but <laughs> and we've all of a sudden got in our hands a can with a zombie that's called brains and we're going to pop it open for this episode rather than sit on it and do a mandatory beer required episode about zombies i i hear you joe i i understand the feeling of the missed opportunity the silver lining here is, as you know, we have a second can of brains with a different fruit combination that we can reserve for a later episode with perhaps a zombie tie-in. Yeah, but we're breaking our trend here. Freak Parade <laughs> from Drecker, episode 41. Freak uh -huh. Parade we did with Booksmart. Fantastic pairing. Good pairing. Episode, episode 42, Lizard People. They're 8.5 <laughs> IPA. We do that with Godzilla, King of Monsters. Then we get brains. Mm -hmm. Well... There were, I, I guess I did see some brains during the film we're about to discuss. Yeah, yeah that's true. 
Yeah, I'm yeah. just impatient, and there's been all this beer staring me in the face in my fridge that I can't drink. Smoothie sour leapt to the front of your eyes. Uh, I was definitely one of the ones I was the most hyped about. Well, yeah. passion fruit, orange, and guava, I can smell all of it. This is a delicious nose. Yeah. It, you know, these smoothie sours are kind of controversial beers. I mean, they're obviously hot right now. There's a few. I don't know how many exactly, but I know a handful, right? Uh, Baba Brewhouse down here in Texas. Uh, what's the other one with the number? 450 North. 450 North, thank That's you. That's probably the most controversial one. Really? Is it, and why is it, why is it that theirs particularly? I, I guess they, I, So the way that they were like going about fruiting it, I guess, or smoothieing it is brewing the beer, and then I think they were like adding it after fermentation, and so okay. they were they had their like ABV listed at like four point five or five right. or something like that, right. and then like actually it was more like one or two percent it was like really really low uh because of the dilution with all the fruit puree after the fact and so where there's <laughs> i found out about that place because there's one guy in a beer group that were in that would get it a lot and everyone in the group would roast him for just drinking juice <laughs> and like that's not even a beer and like whatever and then once that happened it really amped up and they're like there's barely even any alcohol content you have to drink a whole <laughs> case to get drunk or anything or catch a buzz no, you're, but it's that like you're drinking a bunch of fruit instead. yeah yeah no I, I i understand and they are they're certainly they are thick with fruit they have fruit puree um i think i have not had the 450 north so that either. that i can't speak to i have had a couple of the baba brew house there i think it's is it fruit ninja is that what they call theirs after the game um i think it has a ninja in its title the, those have been good but this is my first experience with one oh, yeah from the Drucker. fruit ninja yeah yeah um so you know i'm i'm excited i, li I like the concept but again some people think this is too much this is you're you're, you're basically making you know fruits smoothie, beer, uh, cocktails, you know, do that on your own. Don't can <laughs> it. Try to sell it to me as beer. Yeah. It doesn't have an ABV on it, which is interesting. Um, yeah, looking it up online, I'm seeing 5%, but I, yeah. but I think these are hard because they are so heavy with the fruit puree. I imagine the ABV see, sinks, you know what I mean? Like they, yeah. they may aim for something, but I don't know. Um, I don't know how closely you guys looked at the can, but there is a part on the back that gives you the malt and the hops and oh, yeah. all that stuff. And it's, it says, yeah, gimmicks in list. Passion fruit, more passion fruit, orange, more orange, guava, more guava, sea salt, lactose, and vanilla bean. And then it says, warning, there is a significant amount of fruit in this beer. Please keep cold at all times to, out, to avoid finding out why some call it a fruit bomb. Now, that's another thing that yes, makes these right. controversial is that all of that fruit if there's any remaining yeast in the can will activate the yeast and right. so you'll have a beer fermenting in the can which creates carbonation and people have had beers full-on explode in their cabinets or fridges or and you can you, imagine the clean with all this yeah. all this fruit puree this would be one of the worst yeah, it, beer yeah. it's thick. on me over the years yeah um, well, good. So we're getting our, I'm pretty sure we, we and you know, again, listeners correct us if, if, if we've messed it up and we've had a, uh, 
smoothie sour on the podcast before let us know but but i think this is the first so, so we will enjoy the first while we are actually doing something that is a revisitation uh, again we're revisiting drecker this time we're also revisiting a filmmaker um who we have looked at his his prior film that came out into theaters just a couple years back that was black klansman um now the director spike lee has a new joint, as he calls his projects, uh, that that, and I feel terrible saying that. I think like when I say that, it just sounds horrible. You can't, I can't call something a joint. It's just <laughs> other other than the smokable thing that's called a joint. But yeah. you know, like I call like what's a project I've done a joint. I should be kicked. <laughs> but anyway, Spike Lee. It's not as cool as when joint. Spike Lee says it. No, he can get away with it for sure. Um, he has this new film called *The Five Bloods* that was foregoing theatrical release because it was produced in partnership with Netflix. And so it was always destined for Netflix, though I do believe it was supposed to play some festivals. I think it was going to play Khan and, and maybe something else. But um, but in any case, it was always intended to come out streaming. It has. It, it showed up on June 12th. Um, we watched it. And so we're going to be talking about this latest effort by Spike Lee, which is much buzzed about for a lot of reasons, and and we will get into those, but um, but I've set the table here, guys. Do, do either of you want to jump in and synopsize kind of what the plot is here, or? Um, yeah, so it's about these. Um, uh, even though it's called the Five Bloods, it's about these four um, black Vietnam veterans going back to Vietnam. Um, in search of something that they had hit there during their tour of duty and also to um, try to find and then bring home the remains of the fifth blood, uh, Storm and Norman, played by Chadwick Boseman. Right. And for such a long film, that's the premise. I mean, it's a very short, <laughs> easy premise to like yeah. understand. Well, there's, uh, there's intrigue, there's some oh, subplots. Oh, there's stuff that, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. is stuff that happens. I got to say it just to get it out of the way. And then we can get into some of the more nitty gritty. This is um, easily Delroy Lindo's best performance since Sahara. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got me. You got me. Wow. Uh, it, yeah. I... <laughs> got him. <laughs> I, I I will get us back on track. <laughs> well done. I believe in a bit of divine timing here in that Spike Lee has a film that's releasing right now. And the story that, as you described it well, Carlos, the secret treasure aspect, the um, the trailer puts forth like a grumpy old men vibe. Yeah. If you watch if you watch the trailer, uh, it's a film. It's yeah, old men coming together. Yeah. Yeah, it's a film that I uh, that a lot of people I think are going to watch because uh, it's okay. number it's number three on Netflix right now. The tone it was number one this morning when I watched it. Well, okay. yeah, but they've they've been pushing the Jeffrey Epstein thing again. That's uh, okay. <laughs> so, there you go. But, but in the moment in the moment that we're in, I am happy to see the trend that film watchers of all backgrounds are seeking out. African-American cinema, African-American themes in cinema. And so for that, at this time, at this moment, that Spike Lee has a film coming out, I, it's great. Um, and there's so much to unpack in this movie. I don't know where y'all want to start. We can talk about some of the stylistic choices. You know, the... Uh, well, yeah, well, 
let's let's maybe start big and then and then let's go in. Okay, go ahead. Because I think you're right, Joe. Like in terms of timing, this film it's it's almost eerie that that it was pretty. Now I say that, and of course, like how hard is it to predict that the sort of um, social, racial issues of our society have come to a head yet again. How hard is it to predict that's going to, that, like we're on a fairly regular cycle where that happens. I shouldn't, you know, but this moment does seem to have reached a certain kind of volume and, um, and fervor and passion. Maybe that's the tie in here with the beer, passion fruit, passionate. This is, Spike Lee has always been a passionate filmmaker making films about issues that, trouble him that he thinks about obviously a lot to do with race i mean he, obviously that that's a constant continuous theme almost throughout his entire body of work but to have a film hit like this that i think is making so many kind of direct comments on the state of race relations the state of americans uh the, the standing of america within the global community right american imperialism of, yeah American imperialism. It's just, there's so much going on here. So it, to me, on just a, I guess, an entry level, I, I came out of this, for one thing, I'll just say, I love the film. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm going to unequivocally say I really love this film. I think it's awesome. I think it's enjoyable on an entertainment level, but then I think it's doing so many different things um, with the social commentary and, and being inventive with the filmmaking, as he always is. Uh, it's just, it's an amazing thing to watch. But my head was spinning after the film. I was thinking about so many different things in so many different directions. I think the thing that I'm just most impressed by is how he still, what, 40 years into his career, he was a student filmmaker in the early 80s, we're almost 40 years into his career, uh, this guy is making films that are as thought-provoking as anything else going on out there. And to me, like, that he's been able to kind of stay that relevant a filmmaker for those many decades is amazing. I am jumping on board that train. It is a really, really good movie. Uh, I also loved it. There's there's a lot of truth in my previous bit because the bit was derived from watching it and being like Delroy Lind Lindo is acting his fucking ass off in this movie. Well, he is unquestionably. If there is an Academy Awards <laughs> next year, I mean, I, right now they're opening it up. Let's see if they even do it. But let's say there is. If he's not on, I mean, he'll certainly be on the short list. But if he's not one of the nominees, I would be damn surprised after a role like this yeah. he'll it would probably be in the supporting actor category as strange as that is just because the film sort of four primary well five even if we want to give norman a full berth there um and then the son david but it's split up that much that he probably he he would be thought of more as a supporting actor role but yeah you're absolutely right i mean he does tremendous work with a character that really in some way shouldn't make sense but it does yeah yeah it's a very complicated like person that he's portraying and he is doing it so well um you know someone that's like very conflicted and troubled and trying to be okay but not knowing how to do that and um, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things um I, th I thought the whole cast in general was great i liked all of it i loved oh, yeah. all of the marvin gay especially the what's going Ooh. on acapella that comes in a couple of times yeah um that was really fantastic um I was distracted by Seppo 
because mm. he's just like looks racist to me because <laughs> he was <laughs> I know him from Black's Black Klansman where he is shitty. Uh-huh. And so I'm just like, oh, yeah, there's the white supremacist guy. <laughs> uh, and it's hard to shake. And then the other guy, too, all, I didn't I didn't see it, but uh, the Richard Paul Walter Hauser, yeah. the, who was in uh, Richard, Jewell. Uh, I, Tanya, yeah, I, Tanya, and Richard Jewell. the Richard yeah. I see. But that has tainted him for me. Uh, really? Being the that lead, he worked with Clint Eastwood. Being the lead, the lead in a Clint Eastwood piece of propaganda. Uh, and, which all of Clint Eastwood's movies really are at this point, but um, but, but he was—I mean—he was still good. And Chadwick Boseman is a f- proving himself time and time again to be a really fucking good actor. He makes decisions that are thoughtful that aren't necessarily like really big ones or really slightly altering his voice, you know. And like he doesn't mm-hmm. just like talk like Chadwick Boseman in movies, you know. He like sure. work, you know, actually is an actor that does the work. And isn't just like a you know George Clooney Brad Pitt movie star that shows up and plays George Clooney or Brad Pitt, which he could have easily fallen into, I think. Um, but the, the decision to have the exact same actors at the exact same age also play their younger selves was one that I found yeah. interesting. Um, did it distract you? Did you did you feel like you didn't like that? No, I did like it. Um, okay. I, it stood out to me initially. I mean, how can it, right? Yeah. I mean, like, because I hadn't read up on it. I didn't know they were going to do that. So when they go into the first flashback, um, which is set off, I, I thought that was a, a, a funny moment there. Yeah. Funny, scary PTSD moment yeah. where the, uh, you know, the Vietnamese uh, mine victim there with his leg loss throws the uh, firecrackers at them and they, you know, yeah. all go to the ground. And then we cut to the flashback of them at that age, it's a little bit confusing because you're like, well, wait, is am I seeing footage of them going in? Like, have we jumped forward in time and yeah. now they're going into the jungle? But that's what I thought at I first. It, yeah, once I sorted it out, I was like, that's kind of genius because that threw me off. It discombobulated me, made me believe like they were back in the war again. Like the war environment was still there. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and that is the truth for them, right? I mean, it's still an yeah. active presence a lot of the one of the one of the recurring themes of this film is ptsd the trauma and how it has these lingering effects on all of them especially the paul character played by yeah. Delroy Mendo. i think the decision to do that was like a really great one because you know this is something that we talk about a lot or at least that i talk about a lot that like i i like filmmakers that make visual decisions that tell the story or that aid in telling the story not just moving the camera in like a flashy way or anything like that, but like using the medium to its fullest extent. Oh yeah. And yeah, he does trying that. to use film as a language to, yeah. to, to and convey he, and things that words alone cannot. Yes. Yeah. And, and right. what that, and what that decision says is that these guys have never been able to leave and yeah. have basically been like, you know, aging mentally and emotionally in that hostile environment and it also does help because then you don't have to figure out which younger actor is playing uh, right, which other right. guy. So it completely eliminates that like learning curve. Yeah, I thought that was such a great decision. This pro- the flashback thing easily segues into something that Joe and I very briefly discussed and then immediately stopped uh, while we were waiting for you to join the Skype call is the use of as- a- different aspect ratios. Uh, oh, yeah, throughout. yeah. But I feel like Joe had something to say there, and, and I was curious about the flashbacks and the use 
Well, no, I mean, I was just, I'm in, I'm enjoy, I'm sitting back and enjoying the two of y'all's conversation, and I'm so glad that you enjoyed this movie. I mean, I, I, I did not like it as much as the two of them. Uh, okay, okay. And it's this weird situation that we're in where, uh, the first thing I said, the timing of the movie, I couldn't be happier that it's happening in a moment where we need to see the biggest and the best and brightest of African-American talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to watch that Chappelle, uh, the new that just dropped. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight, eight, it's called it's called Eight Forty Six. I mean, mm-hmm. that is stirring and riveting. And of course, we should point out that Lee shot all of this prior to anything that we're going through right now. Right. But there is a presciousness in all of his work, going back to when we did Black Klansman, mm-hmm. is that Lee is a good is is great. At interspersing in historical footage, be it video, be it photos, um, mm-hmm. he does that here amazingly. Mm-hmm. The, be- the beginning of the film is uh, Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. uh, talking. It's, it's a it's a video of Muhammad Ali talking about, you know, his position on the role of African Americans in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And I learned things watching this movie. Mm. And I believe the things that I learned watching this movie, and I regret learning them now rather than when I might needed to have learned them prior to now. And mm. that's kind of the personal introspection that if you find yourself watching this movie, I was hoping that you would find. And there is plenty of that because I, uh-huh. I think that's helpful right now. A personal introspection sure. of the things that I believe about things that maybe I haven't given enough thought to. Mm-hmm. But separated from the release date of and the necessary moment in America, guys, this is not a very good movie. Huh. I'm, huh. I'm you know, but I recognize the balls and the balls out ambition of uh-huh. everything he cre- he did create from that archival mm-hmm. footage that I talked about to the big nods to Apocalypse Now and the Marvin Gaye soundtrack and the mm-hmm. the aspect ratio decisions. I mean, and, and and I agree with everything you said, Carlos, that Bozeman is exceptional. But it, it, it started notably with me when the son, we didn't mention that Paul's, it's, it's the four of them, the right. older gentleman, and then Paul, uh, Delroy Lindo's character's son, shows up. Yeah. Well, he goes off to take a poop <laughs> with, his, with his shovel and his toilet paper. I knew you were going to have a yeah. problem with this part. And in the one in a trillion gazillion bazillion place that he just puts his shovel into the ground to dig his poop hole when they're not even looking for the gold by the way yeah he hits a a brick of gold and at that point i'm like okay wait a second we can't as much as the message and as much as the timing and as much as the ambition that i'm clearly seeing on screen that's just the beginning of a really bad script guys yeah, I don't oh, know. Oh man, I, I mean, strongly I, disagree with that assessment. <laughs> I, I I hear I hear where you're coming from, Joe, and I feel like if this film is going to suffer for some viewers, and this might have been part of what was doing it for you, because as I was watching it, I mean, it is a un as most of his films are. They are unique. They take you out of any sort of predictable patterns that you have in your mind about how narratives are going to unfold. He's going to throw characters speaking directly at the screen and telling you things. He's going to have characters break into song, in this case, quoting Marvin Gaye lyrics or singing Marvin Gaye lyrics in, in certain scenes, um, sometimes together and sometimes directly to us as audience. There's the the moments that, uh, I don't know, it, it's it's a jarring thing to, to go through a film that's not. And yeah, like it, 
I think part of what it's playing with is this, from what I understand, this evolved from a script that was a fairly straightforward kind right. of right. Um, Vietnam reunion heist film. You know what right. I, I, I It's as conventional as those can be. But, you know, the idea of these war buddies coming back together to get this gold that they had stashed away and get it. Like, that in itself is a film. You don't need to, I mean, what Carlos described. Sure. What Lee's done is he's said, okay, fine, I, I'll do a heist. I'll do, I'll do that kind of film. But you know what? I'm going to make it real in the sense that I'm going to position these characters in the social realities that I think they would have to contend with. And I'm going to ratchet them up as I love to. And I'm going to put these things on display for the audience. And I'm going to mix in this archival footage throughout the film to kind of keep reminding you what this connects to. Um, I, I think these aren't films often that um, feel like I mean, he's made a few in his career that that we could say like are like Inside Man. I remember feeling like right. Is, am I mm -hmm. getting the title right? Yeah, no, like that one. I can remember seeing and like, wow, that almost doesn't feel like a Spike film. It has it has some moments. There are some stylistic flourishes, but in general, it's got a dolly it sticks shot. with it. Yeah, Twenty Fifth Hour. I think kind of also had that feel to me, like it was dealing with some of the issues that he deals with, but it still plays out as a pretty straightforward narrative. Well, we're going to, we're going to, sorry, David, did it. I think is doing more of that complicated stuff that he, that he, that he was doing in Black Klansman, that he was certainly doing in Do the Right Thing, which we're going to talk about in the second half of the episode. Well, I went back to my Black Klansman uh, talk and, uh -huh. you know, the, the problems that I had with it or some of the same problems that I have with this. And, but, but it's not a anti-Lee thing because I can't wait to dive in to do the right thing with you guys. And Bamboozled is incredible and she's mm -hmm. got to have it in school days. And I can understand and watch the evolution too. And what I saw here was Academy Award winning set design sometimes, um, some cinematography choices, but, the, but he just won for best script. And I think that if you revisit this, you're going to see a lot of kind of chinks, a lot of melodrama, John Reno stepping out of a Bond movie, the, Love that. the, the mysterious yeah. prostitute ex-lover who's risen through the ranks of underground import-export business that just stepped out of the Vietnamese version of Dallas. I mean, it was there was some weak there that I I couldn't overlook. I think that was all intentional. Like those, you could you could say that those are bad choices, but I don't think any of it's because he was falling into those tropes mindlessly. I don't think he was ever being like, oh, what's the easy thing to do here? I think he was taking the idea of this more standard kind of action film and turning turning it on its head a little bit, like giving us some of those cliches, but then surrounding it with this stuff that is so much darker and so much more... Um, impactful than it, than you would get in almost any action film at least on its surface like like we get here in certain moments so, so I, the, I didn't i didn't mind the tian character uh i i don't know i didn't that never gave me pause i loved jean renault the bond movie shit was <laughs> dope. and then it's, but, hard, it's hard not to love jean renault but all, yeah. but all, but also here okay so here is Here's what I'm going to say about the like script and it's like plausibleness or anything like that. Um, I've quoted him before and I hate doing it, but Bruce Willis once said it's a movie. It's got to move. And, uh, <laughs> and the thing where David, the son 
goes to uh, make a deposit down at the bank um, and finds the gold bar. Here's why I don't have a problem with that. Yes, it is incredibly unlikely. And in reality, as we know and understand it, would never happen. But what we know about this movie is they're going to find that gold. Yeah. It's a thing that's going to happen. So I don't need personally a script to spend a lot of time on how they found it or making me be able to like believe that it could like actually happen that way. Just get me to the thing. Like the actual finding how they find it is not super important to the story itself, just that they do find it. And then we can continue on with the narrative. It's like a movie that does the opposite of this in a truly, truly dreadful way was Batman versus Superman Zack Snyder spent so much time showing us fucking Lex Luthor going to the going to a congressional meeting about why he should be able to import uh, kryptonite into into the U.S. and having these like legal battles about it, and it's like motherfucker, we know Lex Luthor is gonna get that shit. Otherwise, there's no movie. There's no movie without that. You can't do anything to Superman without it. Why did you spend 30 minutes showing this to me? And I guess that stuff that, I infuriates guess, me. And this movie it, doesn't do that. It just it gets you there. That's all I need. This, I, get me there. This is my simple answer to your – this is my simple rebuttal. If you're going to spend this many million dollars being creative, be creative. I think the movie is incredibly okay. creative. Well, it's, no, it's, no I, was, I was speaking as a rebuttal to your hitting the like, brick, gold brick with the shovel and that – you know, yeah. little time. I, I, anyway, I guess my point is that it's that's such a small detail that no, it screamed, Carlos, and this is where you and I just disagree, and we just disagree, and that's fine. It screams at me, lazy, and it takes yeah. me out of and it takes me out of the experience. But again, that's that's based on the premise that this is somehow just falling back on cliche and not directly wanting to create. Oh, he could have invented a whole new cliche. Kind of, this kind of tension between the standard action film and his film and his See, I almost didn't say I almost thing. didn't say a word because I didn't want to go rab- rabbit trails down the specific things. <laughs> I, it didn't do for me what it did for y'all. I wish it had. It was one of my most anticipated films of the but year. But I think the good thing is is that you're going to benefit from hearing our righteous oh, perspective without <laughs> a doubt. No, and eventually I, you will come back to it, and I have a feeling on pro- it'll probably be like episode two thirty eight. I'm just gonna uh-huh, I'm putting okay. a number out there when we do another likely film. Special moment where right. he's like, you know what, guys, I've gone back, I've rewatched it. I know the error of my ways. I get it. No, but this is what, no, and that and that's in, in the meantime, all, David. In purpose. the meantime, David, I'll just in the meantime, David, I'll just sit over here and be wrong. <laughs> that's hey. the easiest thing to. do. I mean, that's yeah, and I think if you're gonna go with a cliche here, do it, Joe. This is mm-hmm. the cliche you should do. Yeah, it it uh, is the right <laughs> thing. No, before we lose a little bit of sight on some of the particulars of what I what I think maybe helps make the case for Lee as a true artist and and craftsperson putting together something in a very intentional way, the use of four different aspect ratios was mentioned earlier. We didn't really get into that, but it kind of helps separate some of the sequences. But it's not done just willy nilly, right? They use 16 millimeter, one three three one footage that would have been standard for like television news reporting from the Vietnam era. So whenever we see that footage, which we see in so many documentaries about Vietnam and 
that's what we're seeing those flashbacks in. That's that's what we're seeing those characters in. They even bring in some eight millimeter at some point where they're on the boat and they're kind of taking these uh, home movies together, and we see that sort of put on the screen that way. Um, the stuff that's out in, if I'm not correct, the jungle is is a little bit narrower format than the uh, than the stuff in the city. That yeah, any time like- any time that they're in a city, modern day. It's a uh, 16.9, and then it, it widens up to take advantage of the full television screen during mm-hmm. any time they're in the jungle. Right, right. There's a, there's a Slate article, and we can post it on our social media okay. that does a great explanation after an interview with the cinematographer. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and, and it's not only the aspect ratio, David. Sure. There's different cinematography styles and color palettes. Right. Like I said, the 16 millimeter, so it's a grainier. Sure, footage. I ha- I haven't seen a better use of color palette from era to era or place to place than I has uh, than I had since the last time I saw the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Yeah, no, it's he he loves doing that. I mean, the, Spike Lee often uses very distinctive color mm-hmm. palettes, and that's definitely going on here as well. Um, so, so I think, you know, visually we have that, the score, I think is amazing. Terrence Blanchard, he, no, you don't like the score. The score didn't work for you. I love the score. Yeah. That's, that's not what I meant. Keep going. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, the, the score I think, you know, is, is terrific as, as many of those scores have been, uh, since he's been, it's at least back to the early nineties that he's been working with Terrence, uh, Blanchard over and over again. Um, you know, in the mixing of the Marvin Gaye stuff we've already talked about. I mean, I love that bringing in the popular music of that era and, and in a very meaningful way where the lyrics are definitely commenting on what's going on among them. What's ha- like as they're going into the jungle, they're sort of singing along what's happening, brother. I mean, it's not playing. They are singing it there a cappella as they're walking along. I thought that was a really moving moment, seeing these guys connect over this music that had meant so much to them. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I just I, I feel like as I was watching it unfold, even in that first viewing, those moments that were jarring ended up making sense. And I felt like all of it was technique being used to elevate the material. And like Carlos was saying, to convey things that the story alone could never convey, like there to be able to tell it with the visual medium and vis- audio visual medium of cinema. I thought it was fantastic. And it gave me one of those moments of renewed hope where it's like, okay, this is a legit streaming release that I'm watching on opening night. I mean, I watched it on that Friday night when it came out that I feel like this is as cool of a, as an event movie as I'm ever going to have, even in the theater. I'm enjoying this in my living room right now as much as I'm going to enjoy going to see something in the theater eventually. Well, that's that's an interesting twist. Because it, it had enough there. So anyway, yeah, but I, really, I, I, I am sorry that. to hear that you didn't like it. And, and, but I understand. I understand where you're coming from. And no, I don't think I'm right and you're wrong. I just, um, I'm playing. No, I, I, just mean, I just mean there is a lot of news these days about the release dates. And uh, they're trying to anticipate when theaters are going to open. And we've yeah. talked about it on this show so often. We're very curious about the business end of that. What's going to happen next? It's curious to watch. Right. So, I mean, in the brains of those executives making those decisions, we can only guess at what's going on. But in the brains of this can that well we done. poured into our glasses, what do we think, guys, of this first fruit smoothie sour to have on the podcast? Let me say this first before we talk about the beer of it. That's a damn refreshing beverage. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Super tasty. And delicious, yeah. 
Now, I don't know anything about the science of it, if, that, if the ABV is lower than 5% because they added the, mm. the, the fruit puree after fermentation. I don't know, and I don't care. Can I just have another one, please? <laughs> I, I loved it. I finished, <laughs> finished it quickly. Yeah. Uh, it is very refreshing, um, fucking delicious. Um, yeah. It's fortifying. I would. I mean, I, I hear what you guys are saying with the refreshing because the, you know fruit and especially orange, the citrus. I mean, there is something lively about it. But to me, they're more like it is like a smoothie. I mean, with it's all heavy, the puree yeah. in there, it it almost feels like I'm having a breakfast shake or something. I mean, <laughs> it's tasty and I like it. But I could not be drinking a four pack of this. Oh, god! Right? No. These cans, yeah. So this is kind of this is one that's actually they're fun to share. That's how I've had them in the past. Um, and I would say like even a 16 ounce can being four ounces of this, I think is great, especially if there were a couple of them to taste. I don't know that I'd want much more 16 on, on one's own, I think is probably pushing it. Well, you make a good point. Had I opened that other 16, I might get halfway through it and realize, Ooh, if I made a horrible decision here, but the flavor profile, I, I want more of. Yeah, it's super tasty. I, I would definitely want more and I wish I had more cans of this, but, uh, but I'm glad we all got to taste it, and I'm glad that Drecker continues to put out some great stuff. And we'll see how many other breweries are going to start catching on and canning these uh, smoothie sours. I have a feeling we'll probably see some more uh, well, circulating yeah, it's soon. Certainly, it's certainly emerging trends, and the trend lines of the beer world's sour smoothies are on an uptick. Yeah, yeah. so we'll probably have a local brewery do it in like five years. <laughs> and we'll bring <laughs> possibly we'll bring it back we'll bring it back yeah absolutely all right so uh we'll bring everything back at the uh after the break when we talk about another spike lee film as we've mentioned we're going to talk about do the right thing his 1989 um classic classic with, surrounded in, surrounded in controversy but classic film interesting renowned um and it was surrounded in controversy yeah sure yeah yeah we can get into that um, and another beer when we come back. We sure are, and we are ready to talk about uh, a film that I think we'll probably all agree on uh, in, in the second half of this episode. But before we do that, and to make sure that we can agree, uh, I think it's good that we get ourselves uh, amped hey, up hey, here hey, with David. Little... I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I'm looking at mm-hmm. the can, and mm-hmm. look over to the left side. Don't freak out. Send sediment and what you can do about it. And then they mm-hmm. tell you to roll the can for even sediment distribution or to pour or, it. Real, 
and leave a little bit in the in the bottom of the can where the sediment will be. What are y'all gonna do? I rolled it. Yeah, I distribute that. Oh, I'm gonna okay. All right, thanks for the advice. I'm gonna roll well, it around. You could have been our our experiment. You could have been the control group here. Well, <laughs> no, nah, I just I'm a, I'm a follower tonight. Oh, okay. Well, the, yeah. So the, so the idea here, um, you know, this is uh, from new the new Orthodox India Pale Ale series. Uh, this is from the Old Nation Brewing Company, based out of Michigan, Williamston. Not had them before. I'm almost. 100% certain, 99.9% certain. This is a double India Pale Ale from this brewery. It is called Boss Tweed. It is 9.3%, so pretty hefty for a double. Um, and obviously, they're going on with the haze craze because uh, on the can it says haze is good, and they're they're uh, encouraging some of us at least to distribute that sediment to make sure that that haze is present. So here we go, gentlemen. I love a good double IPA. Thanks for bringing this to us, David. Well, we've gone back and forth, right? We've had this, uh, you know, love hate with I double IPAs. We had we had some that were a little malty, and we were kind of away from them. But uh, but you know, we had some really good luck with uh, with one recently, and now we're back, and we'll see if we have good luck with this one. Let's hope that we've done the right thing with this. <laughs> All right. Oh God. And, and with that, Joe. Uh, well, it's time for our second Spikely film. We'll typically do that. If a new release comes out, we'll look at one of the director or maybe a star in the film's older films. Do the Right Thing is, of course, Spike Lee's second film. It came out in 1989. But it's one that most people are going to tell you got Spike Lee the most attention and set his star afire for what would become the rest of his career. Um this is the first time I've seen it in a very, very long time. I had seen it and made the impression on me that uh, listener David over on our Facebook page when we announced what we were going to do said, no film in my lifetime prompted as many conversations among friends as Do the Right Thing when it came out. The most important film of the 80s from my perspective. perspective. And it's certainly one of those films that creates a conversation. No matter what background you have, when you watch this film, it is likely that you are going to, A, see some things you've never seen before, or B, if these are things you have seen before, have a very clear opinion on right, wrong, the race relation, the socioeconomic uh, impacts of the film. There is so much in this, you know, 90-minute, hour 40 film that it is, it begs you to and everyone to see it. I think you know where I stand on do the right thing before we move on. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it is a a huge film. It was a huge moment, um, which is funny to look back on for me because 1989, I was not quite 11 when this came out. And I can remember the buzz around it. I mean, I remember it being talked about on television, whether it be the news or talk shows or what, you know, like it was just something that was in the air and that people were talking about. I didn't get to see it until a few years later when I, when I was a little bit older. I don't know what I would have made of it when I, when I was 10 anyway. Um, but, uh, but it's just, you know, it was a, to, to use a term that probably gets overused, it was a film that, had a certain role in the zeitgeist of that time, I think, that, you know, for the 1980s, 
the rise of hip hop as a as a as a form of expression. Um, you know, Spike Lee kind of on the I don't want to say like he was part of that. You know, coming out of New York, bringing in the public enemy in this film, opening up and and repeating several times throughout it, fight the power. I mean, the whole they were part of that moment. It's it's just it's really interesting to look back on. Now I have returned to it a few times since seeing it, probably the first time in the mid '90s. Um, and and since, but it had been maybe you know five or six years since I had seen it the last time, and it is as vibrant today as it was you know whatever the twenty plus years ago when I saw it the first time. Well, I just saw this for the first time ever. No That's revisiting. Right. Uh, wow. Involved. I I had tried. I had tried to watch it once before, but it was like kind of later at night, and I fell asleep. Mm-hmm. And I also did fall asleep watching it this time as well. Um, <laughs> but that has nothing to do with how I feel about the movie. It's just because I'm a sleepy ass bitch. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I saw it for the first time, and it was super weird how like relevant it still is and sure. it's a bummer <laughs> like a huge <laughs> bummer um, well it's like hearing the marvin gay stuff yeah. in uh, in the the five bloods where you're like this is an album from almost 50 years ago where it feels like every lyric could be easily grafted onto our moment and it yeah. could just be as relevant an album coming out right now i feel the same way watching do the right thing it's like my god 30 years ago we could say almost none of this stuff has really shifted. Well, and the and the pastiche of characters that exist in this film is vast. Sure. So, I mean, to, to briefly synopsize, on the hot, 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 hot day mm-hmm. in uh, suburban New York, uh, a... Not really suburban, just one of... It's yeah, bed, Bed-Stuy. Bed-Stuy. Right. Yeah, and so you've got a predominantly african-american community and the characters that live on a single one or two street blocks in in that on those street blocks in that area is an italian owned pizzeria and the interactions and the personal interactions and the characters that make up that block from samuel l jackson playing the radio dj to ruby d playing the matriarch of the neighborhood to uh Ozzie Davis playing the street drunk with the wisdom of a thousand men. You know, it's it's and then of course the the the, the racial tension that occurs as the heat escalates throughout the neighborhood. It's um, I watched it with uh, uh, my fiance's daughter. She couldn't take her eyes off the screen. Oh, that's. Yeah. In the moment that we're in introducing this film to anyone that might watch it, you know, just for the, the notions of anything you can do to make people think, think. And we're talking about 1989 themes that right, we yeah. could be watching a film that was made today, barring the hip hop dancing, which is incredibly aged. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, sure. That uh, that that was of the moment. I mean mm-hmm. that that was and and she Rosie Perez was the choreographer here. Oh really? She also yeah, she's also dancing in that. And she went on right after this, or you know, as, she may have already been involved to be the choreographer for the series in Living Color, which mm. I don't know if Carlos even has that reference point. But this I do. Joe I love okay. in Living Color. I, used, right. to, I well, used to own it. I used to own all the seasons on DVD. 
Well, you have more cred than than even I do because I homie don't play that. (laughs) But you know, all all the Fly Girls routines were choreographed by Rosie Perez. So you know, she was definitely a hip hop choreographer of that moment. Um, who and I believe that's how she got involved with the film was Spike Lee spotted her at a club dancing and was like, oh, I want you to be part of this project I'm doing and, and brought her in. Then obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, unfortunately, many years later, it came out that she was very uncomfortable with some of how he had her in the film and in particular the nude scenes which since i've learned about that stuff makes the film a little bit more complicated and harder to enjoy in certain parts especially i'm glad that um, i didn't know that watching it yeah it's, it's kind of sad but um you know basically just she was very young and feeling a little bit coerced and kind of not necessarily wanting to do it but feeling like she had to to be in this important film and uh, anyway so yeah. so all that said, it is funny because it is a bit of a time capsule that way. You see it and you can definitely tell this is late 80s hip hop. This is not hip hop circa 2020. Yeah. Samuel L. Jackson was, all, I didn't I didn't even know that he was in this. Uh, and so I, I believe, and I could be wrong, um, that the camera's kind of panning out. It's like really close when he's first talking and it starts panning out and panning. And the further it got, I was like, is that Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Turturro is really good in this movie and he's like one of my favorite actors but fuck he's a piece of shit and it makes it so hard I mean yeah it makes it so hard to yeah he's played skeezy characters before Uh, oh yeah he's he's definitely capable of of doing this is one that doesn't have anything redeemable about it though like you know he um, right Jesus in Big Lebowski is a pedo which is terrible (laughs) But at least that character has some like flair and like eccentricities and odd things about it where it's like, okay, yeah, this, like, I see what you're doing, blah, 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 blah. And it makes it a little more digestible because he's so over the top that it's kind of removed from reality in a way that isn't as like infuriating. But this guy is like just a normal dude who sucks a lot and is a piece of shit. And it's just like, cause we know that, like, we know that guy and it's right like so grounded that it's like oh it's maddening the whole time um yeah yeah you've got a situation in a neighborhood that is ripe to boil over i mean that analogy runs through the film mm-hmm. uh there is a character it takes two two or three sentences of film setup to get to an essential question of the movie there's a character named uh, Radio Rahim who walks around the neighborhood with a jam box. There are uh, Korean. O- there is a Korean-owned bodega nearby, across the street mm-hmm. uh, from the piz- pizzeria. Um, Radio Rahim is not seen as a main character throughout the film, but when he gets into a confrontation about batteries, and then the police are called in, and then there is the murder in front of the entire street of an african-american that is a essential part of the neighborhood mm-hmm. which leads to an explosive moment and you know i think last year 2019 was the 30th anniversary of this film and one of the questions that is still debated that spike lee has been you know kept his cards close to him about is that mookie played by spike lee um 
employed by the pizzeria. And of course, you said John Turturro is the son of the pizzeria owner. I don't even know if we've sand, said Danny Aiello's name before now, no, but he's e exceptional. He's such a But now actor. that you have, I hope that Carlos adds the sound effect that we had agreed upon anytime we said oh, Danny yeah. <laughs> Cavernous reverb, yeah. And the African-American community, as you can imagine, after one of their own is killed on the streets, is incensed. And Mookie, who had been told by the owner, you always have a place to work here, who the owner is a, you know, he's the one that picks up the trash can, throws it to the window, and begins a riot, and not a riot, but a, the destruction of that property. And it's the question is, yeah, the question is, why did Mookie do that? Especially knowing that he goes back the next day and Sal, the same guy who's sitting in front of the rubble of his store, pays him his wages plus a double his wages for the previous week. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I can. T I feel like he did it because he. You can't, you know, um, be timid just because someone writes your check or whatever like the your money like money isn't going to subdue your anger and yeah. you, you know something has to be done and uh radio or Akeem's life is more important than 250 bucks mm -hmm. and i think that i think i think also just like you know that's not like sal is someone that mookie knows and even though they have a kind of push-pull relationship, I think the uh, Sal's actions as somebody that Mookie is close to make what he has done even more repugnant to Mookie. That someone that he is that involved with could have done something like this, could have been the catalyst of this. And so at that point what do you have left to do? Nothing's going to be done about it. The cops just, yeah. the cops just drag radio Rakeem off and leave. They're not, yeah. com they're not coming back to help anybody. They're not coming back to try to, um, you know, achieve any sort of justice. They're probably just going to try. Repair. Uh, I think they're, I know. I don't even think that they're just going to go take, uh, the guy from Breaking Bad to jail. Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah, and yeah. then try to... Who is, who is great. Who is great. He is great. Yeah, and then, out. and then try to act um, like they that some, like some, something else happened to Radio Rakim and it was more of an accident than it really was. And then only come back again if like black folks start acting up and they have to do something about it. You know? Right. The, there would never be any kind of inquisition about what started that, you know, uh, altercation. And, you know, anyone with fucking half a brain knows that the cops are only there to maintain social order and protect property, but they don't care about a black man's property that Sal destroyed this guy's stereo. They're never going to go dig back that far because all they saw was a black man attacking a white man. They killed him and then they were just going to be done with it. So yeah. if you're Mookie, like, what else are you going to do? Like, fuck this dude. Like, yeah, you know? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's there for sure. I mean, I, I think I think the the idea that, um, you know, again, it goes back to some, some of what, you know, I, I think a lot of people have been talking about and like the reaction, some of the some of the recent uh, 
issues that we've been going through and, and the huge stories um, evolving around, you know, the death of George Floyd and that, you know, we have the, the very, um, like, just outright murder in this case, in front of a crowd of people and, and do the right thing. In the case of George Floyd, being caught on cell phones so that we can all see it. Um, but in either case, the death of this man for no good reason. And then you have people afterwards questioning, well, why would somebody throw a trash can through a window? Are you kidding? Like, why are we talking about what, like, how could you be focused on the idea that there was destruction to this place when we just saw a man die? And if you're asking about that and not incensed enough about the man dying that you don't feel like there's the anger is there in, in some legitimate way, then you're, you're kind of missing the point. And I think that's, pro that's how I've read at least Lee's disinterest in really talking about it is like if you want to ask me about why would Mookie do this thing well did you not just see this man die did you not see that I wrote this story about a character dying in this very you know sort of cowardly way that's so predictable and like Carlos is pointing out that's almost no chance of it actually seeing any real justice and how could you not be thinking that everybody there is going to sort of erupt in some kind of anger and, uh, and you know, sort of righteous outburst of anger? You know, in some ways, I think him throwing the can, and I've seen other people make this claim, it directs the anger at the business instead of Sal and his sons, right? I mean, you have Danny Aiello standing out there in a line with John Turturro and, uh, and Richard Edson there as Pino and Vito. And there's a moment, I remember seeing the film for the first time, where I thought it was going to turn into them beating these men <laughs> to death, which I think would have been a much more horrific kind of ending uh, than what we end up seeing. And so there was almost a relief in seeing, okay, they burned the, they torched the pizzeria. Okay, <laughs> like, fine, all right. Like, I didn't have to watch these three men die in the street after another man had just died yeah. unjustly. And it's like, so, it's like Mookie says that insurance is going to cover it anyway. Uh, right. And I, well, yeah, I also hadn't, that makes it total sense. I hadn't thought about it that way that he's, he's well, actually, a, actually protecting Sal. There's an incredible shot there of the three of them and kind of, you know, a three shot of the, the father and the two sons standing there and you hear the sound of this crowd, you know, getting in, intensifying in its passionate anger. And they're, again, like I said, watching it again, it, it's always that kind of tension of, oh, my God, are these guys going to meet their end here? Is this going to get that dark? And somehow the burning of the business, as terrible as it is, I'm not saying I like seeing things destroyed, but it feels like a middle ground. <laughs> it feels like a middle ground at that point. Yeah, it's just stuff. Yeah. You can yeah. replace stuff. Right. And, and, it, and it's stuff that, you know, at least part of the family was kind of sick of it. You know, the, the sons don't seem interested in the place. Do they even want it to, to continue? And like, it, you know, I know it doesn't get into that, but there, there's, I think there's something there. No, it does. It, it, it does get into that. Well, I'm saying that, you know, we hear John Turturro throughout the film saying how much he hates the place. He, under the right circumstances, may have burnt it down himself. <laughs> no, no, Sp mean, Spike Lee does a great job not making this faceless white people who we don't care about so that the, the destruction of their property isn't, you know, doesn't give us a, a moral pause. He does yeah. a very good job. And you said it best, Carlos, Toturo is a bad apple uh, of the sons. The other son is, is 
more tolerant and certainly considers the the African American community that, that this company serves as his friends. Yeah. But the but the father and we didn't really talk about it. I mean, he's got a relationship with Mookie's sister that isn't I, it never presented as untoward or or inappropriate, but he has affection for this girl for reasons not really explained. In other words, he's not racist as presented prior hold on as presented prior to when the blood is boiling and i think the theme of the entire movie is right in front of us when we boil over when these conversations boil to a place where they can no longer be dealt with in any kind of sit down way because we've refused to do that prior to now when when sal boils over he says a lot of words that uh you know that that we can't agree with. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. and then the, the essential question is that level of violence ever justified. Yeah. You get to wrestle with that after you watch this film. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think he wants you to. Absolutely. I think, I think this, this was but meant to be a But then he comes back the next film. day for redemption. He comes back the next day for redemption or forgiveness. And that's yeah. fascinating as well. Does Sal forgive Mookie? Well, does he is he coming back for forgiveness there? He's, I mean, he's coming he, back to get paid, but that he comes been... back to demand his money and they, and and to have I think and to I, I think he's having something out there, but I don't think he's looking for redemption. I think he's looking to get well get his money and also to have this interaction with Sal to kind of to make sure that Sal understands what's just gone on, what's transpired, and and. I think, um, I mean, th- this is, you know, we can focus on the the uh, John Turturro character. Is it is it Pino? All right, yeah. Um, as the, um, you know, sort of, we can't relate to him. We can't, you know, he is a villain. We we see it. He's he's so um, outwardly racist and says these things in so many ways. Um, and I think that's true, but he's in the context of this family where it's kind of balanced. Like you, I think you're right. You have his younger brother who is more, I mean, he, he's actually, I don't, know, I don't know how to, but he seems like kind of disengaged. He doesn't seem like he really, you know, he's, he seems like he doesn't really think about these things much beyond, hey, these are nice people. They come to our shop. We, you know, I like these people. That's kind of where his thinking is. He's not thinking about like the social problem of race or the way that we see each other. And then the dad who is totally aware of it and has found his own way of navigating it for the whatever, you know, what do we imagine? This has been around for 25, 30 years on the block there. Um, kind of having his little shrine to Italian American culture right. preserved there, both in the, the food and these images on the wall of famous Italian Americans. You know, that's really what incites the initial disagreement here is that, you know, uh, bugging out the Giancarlo Esposito characters kind of, you know, makes the comment that, hey, I come to this parlor every day to get a p- slice of pizza and I'm sitting here and I have to look at, you know, only these famous Italian Americans. How about you throw one of my people up here? We, we, we are the ones who pay your bills here. We're the ones who are buying your pizza. Why don't you recognize some of us, you know, put Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, somebody who, you know, we look up to and, and who comes from uh, our, you know, sort of part of the culture. And, and what is and, and what an easy thing for Sal to have been able to do. Right. But that in Sal's world, right, you know, he looks at himself as a I've achieved this as an individual. I'm a business owner. I'm entitled 
to make these kind of decisions. This is my domain. I get to define what is important, what's worthy of sort of elevation within this shrine to culture that I've created, and and really wants to kind of stand firm on it. And it feels again like this this film right now, like this this feels like an argument that we're having now. Well, you know. Our lives matter. Well, no, all lives matter. Italian Americans' lives. If I want to show Italian Americans who have achieved, here they are. You know what I mean? And and I can do that. And I should be entitled to do that. I don't know. It's 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 really interesting when you think about things like the again the cultural conversations that are going on now. We're kind of stuck in the same kind of ruts that that we've been stuck in forever. Yeah, it's you know. Sal, I mean, you know, Sal is the outsider in this situation. Like, there aren't other people like him in in the neighborhood, right? And so, yeah, if you're uh, if you're bugging out, you just want to see yourself in your surroundings. You like want to see yourself represented in the places that you go and the businesses that you patron. And yeah, the fact that Sal is so absolutely defiant of like a, such a simple request. I mean, you know whether he's overtly racist or not he's which he becomes overtly racist comes out at a certain point but i mean mm-hmm. he is still clearly you know a problem and and you're right he he has this like sense of entitlement and yeah. rather than rather than seeing his patrons as like you guys coming here allows me to keep doing this he sees it as like I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. Like you, yeah. you know, you get this because of me. Like I'm, I'm the center of attention. I'm the center not of attention, right. but I'm the center of this. Well, he calls is, himself the boss, right? Which yeah. is why we picked this wonderful no, <laughs> boss tweet. No. Uh, but the, uh, you know, the idea that you know he is entitled to sort of dictate the terms because he's the one who owns the property. He is the one who has the business. He is the one who has achieved these results. So he is going to do this, even though, yes, like you say, well, but if we flip it the other way, it's only because this community has been there to support him. It's only because this community comes in. And what is the relationship there between us as individual members of a community and individuals within that community who have achieved certain things and have certain power and certain privilege because we are in those positions. It's, you know, it, there is a huge tension. Um, I, I, you know, I love seeing uh, it play out as kind of uh, dramatically as this. I mean, the visual style is there. He had not gotten to the dolly shots yet. We, we So we don't, I, I mean, which, the, which the I double for- dolly shot. Yeah, which yeah. I forgot to mention in the first half of the episode we were getting towards the end and i know that in episode 12 i said this exact same thing for black Klansman, but we were getting towards the end of the film and i was like man are we not going to get a dolly shot and then he gives it to us <laughs> and then he gives it to you i he gives love it to that you. shit yeah so you, you definitely get it in uh in the five bloods but it was not there yet for do the right thing but still like the the color palette here Red is huge. I mean, yeah. there's you know a lot of that kind of emphatic use of red all throughout the neighborhood, especially things associated um, w- with the passions that people are feeling, right? And this this heat that, that's constantly talked about. Um, but then you know, on top of that, the use of canted angle framing in this film yeah. Yeah. still very you know those kind of tilted images where you know the the horizon line does not line up with the frame uh, of the film. So everything's kind of askew. It feels kind of t- like even before things start boiling over, 
everything kind of feels like it's boiling over a little bit. Um, the, you know, visualizing the heat through the things like, you know, again, I said red was a present color, but even just like the lighting that they're using and like the bedroom scenes and a lot of that is very, you know, it, it has that kind of warmth to it because they're using those oranges and those yellows and those reds. Um, it's it's a really uh, stunning film to look at and, and a bold film. And you can just imagine how, because if you see his features before this, right, um, She's Gotta Have It, School Days, um, they were on that path. I mean, She's Gotta Have It is black and white. So it does mm -hmm. not have the color. It does have that one color sequence in it. There, there's sort of that musical dance sequence that, that goes on. That's kind of like this fantasy dream sequence, um, which is lovely and, and showed his interest in color. But to see, this is, I think, the film where it really comes to full blossom and you kind of see like, okay, this guy is... I, the only the filmmaker who I compare him to the most, at least in terms of the boldness of kind of visual style and the way that he has characters sort of operate sometimes within scenes as, you know, sort of interacting with each other, but then other times really interacting with us directly as the audience is Jean-Luc Godard. And I know we haven't really gone into French New Wave much on the podcast, and I don't know how many of our listeners are, but if you... We'll subject them at to all, it at some point. Yeah, I mean, if you're at all sort of a, a student of film history, the period of the 1960s, huge time for these French filmmakers to really push boundaries. And Jean-Luc Godard was the guy who was probably pushing it the most, at least in terms of like form and style. And, you know, I look at Lee, Spike Lee and, and his work, and that to me is the closest comparison when we think about American independent cinema, because he's the guy who I think has that kind of bold visual style that very few filmmakers will even attempt. I agree. I uh, thank, thankfully because of this podcast, I'm a little late to the game, but I am becoming a very, very big fan of Spike Lee. Well, I'm glad that it, that it's happening. I mean, and I think this, I was glad we got to this because I think it's a really important one for a lot of reasons, but I think it's a timely one. Um, not, I think we would have picked this one to pair with it anyway, but, but given the, uh, the timing and everything, it, it makes perfect sense. I don't know if you guys got a chance to see, I think I shared the link, the, the short, uh, piece that Spike Lee put together that sort of brings together Radio Rahim and George Floyd. Um, yeah, I totally and, saw it. Uh, it was great. I did not. Yeah. I mean, Okay, yeah, it's it's worth checking out. Yeah, and we'll try to link that through our social media. But no um, doubt, no doubt, it's yeah, and and again, this is this, <laughs> it's eerie, you know, right? To see this film that dramatizes this horrible event where a black man is, you know, essentially suffocated to death by being choked by a police officer, and we are living through a moment where. That and, and not to say that it hasn't happened repeatedly since then, but we're living through a moment where it's been captured and we're seeing that imagery over and over and over again, not because it's part of a feature film that people are talking about, but because, you know, again. And I, I said earlier, we, we kind of left off the, the controversy of this film. You know, it it was hugely, well, it was it was buzzed about. It was a successful film, right? I think it made over 30-something million dollars at the box office, which at the time was really good, especially for a film that was made on a budget like this. But a lot of critics were talking about how that ending, you know, that, that riot that breaks out at the end of the film, how it could be inciting audiences, that we might see people breaking out. It didn't happen. People, <laughs> people didn't do that. But it was yeah. sort of 
it was one of those moral panic sort of things. Like, are you, is this um, irresponsible of a filmmaker to be fanning flames? Because a lot of people saw it as a film that was more, um, again, exacerbating. You know, there is that, and it's still out there today, sad to say, I see people talking about it. Like, to talk about race is to divide us. So we can't talk about race, folks. We can't because it's going to make everybody angry and it's going to put them into their corners. And it's going to, when the only way that we can, ever move forward is to be able to name these things and to talk about them and to understand other people's experiences with them. Um, but you know, at least that's how I feel. And so, you know, to me, like a film that brings up these topics, I think we need them. We need more of them probably. And we need them from bold filmmakers like Spike Lee, who's, who's kind of doing it in ways that are always, um, there to provoke and, and to get us to think about it and not irresponsibly. I don't think he ever had the intention of trying to incite violence with this film and it didn't end up doing that. Um, you know, people, I remember his film, Joe brought up bamboozled earlier. I remember a lot of people talking about how that film, it really digs into these terrible stereotypes yeah. of blackness that existed through minstrelsy and blackface as a, as a practice. Um, but it's a film that it's, it's it's out there to make you uncomfortable. It's trying, like if you watch that film and you feel totally okay with everything, something's wrong. You should <laughs> feel really upset. Yeah. And that's, you know, those are the kind of film experiences that he makes. And The Five Bloods, I think is doing that, right? I mean, I think that both of these films that we watch today in their own ways, even if The Five Bloods at times lets us feel kind of comfortable with that kind of action movie aesthetic that is, part of it right it's constantly poking at that and it's constantly kind of popping that balloon for you to kind of drag drag you out of it and kind of make you reflect on well okay but what are some of these other dynamics at play what what was the effect of war on these men what was the effect of their sort of like racial identities and how they were positioned even within their own fighting force at that time um what how has that unfolded since then for them and i'm just again like these aren't films that you put on as light entertainment but these are films that you put on as big experiences that you're going to get something out of. And I feel the same way with Black Klansman, even if I felt it was a little bit more of a, a flawed film in certain ways, I think it was provoking and it, and it was getting us to talk about these things. Well, Spike Lee is always going to use the tricks that we talk about that Spike Lee has, the way we talk about Wes Anderson's tricks. And one of those is the use of photos and videos and historical context whenever something is coming up and i it's a tool of his that i have problems with sometimes i did with black Klansmen, but i felt made the five bloods a little bit a better film actually okay. so okay. you know it will i am so glad that we could have talked about this important important american filmmaker today yeah um it you know it it's it's great to see him working at the level that he is, like I said earlier in the podcast, I'm excited to see what continues to come from him because I know he's, I know he's got to be thinking about our moment right now. And I'm, oh God, sure, yeah. he is, I'm sure he's got probably five different projects <laughs> that he's I trying to get so. off the ground. Um, but uh, we should, we should circle back here and talk about this, uh, this beer we've been drinking through this second half of the podcast Our 9.3% in all, Boss Tweed Double India Pale Ale from the Old Nation Brewing Company. What do you guys think of this double IPA? It's all right. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think it's as um, I don't think it's as nuanced as some of the. Well, the, uh, I'm trying. Oh, faded. Faded was the last one that we had mm-hmm. from, from uh, Spindle Tap. Um, I think that one has more of that kind of juiciness at the forefront, and and it helps to kind of balance it out. This one pulls back a little bit more towards the malt, and there's still a good hop presence in there. It's drinkable, but I agree with you, Carlos. It's not as beautifully balanced a beer as I've had from from some breweries these days. Yeah, that malt is kind of, it's not it's not too malty. That's why I say it's okay, because it's definitely not bad. But the that malt is coming through just like, yeah. and slightly overpowering some of that more floral hop aroma that you would, you know, yeah. want out of. Uh, and it's not really a juicy hops that I'm, no. that I'm getting here. It's more of a grassy kind of, a little bit of bitterness in there. There's... I mean, again, it's not unpleasant, but it, but it's not as lively and and refreshing as say, you know, those kind of more citrus forward kind of hazy IPAs. What, what did you feel like, Joe, with this one? I'm not, I'm not hating this at all. This is well, good. delicious. Uh, I think that I, th- I think that we've got a fantastic track record going on these double IPAs over the last few episodes. Mm. And uh, you know it's all that positive manifestation that we, the three of us, put out together. This is a well balanced beer that I would drink a two or three of on a the hottest of summer days and feel fantastic. I, I I'm glad that you brought this to us, David. Thank you one more time. But let's oh. uh, let's find some more of this brewery as soon as we can. I definitely like to try some more from Old Nation. I think I well, no I, I think this is a a good beer. I think if I drank two more of these, I'd probably be passed out in the yard. But that's the, that's I mean, called Thursday, on my own, on my David. Own. That's called that's Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> We're still in quarantine, so we can. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and speaking of, I can't wait to get in the room with you guys. I'm I'm sick of this shit. <laughs> and you know, we'll, we'll the get audio there. Quality I think. will improve. That's true. That's true. I I, I don't think I'll miss the uh, the varying audio. But uh, yeah, it would be nice be nice to be able to share some beers with you guys in person again at some point in the future. Um, so let's hope that happens here yeah. as we come to some of the future episodes. For sure. Well, we're, dro- we're dropping what episode ninety two. This is ninety four. Okay, six weeks from now is one hundred. Can we get in a room together? One hundo. We might be six able to. weeks from now. Yeah, we. I think that uh, my mic cords are long enough. Uh, yeah, we could be hashtag beer in a movie. Hashtag beer in a movie goals. Uh, yeah, we could be thoroughly separated. Do it in the shop or something. Um, yep. Well, if you are listening to this episode on the day that it came out, you've had five whole fucking days to watch *The Five Blood*. So if you haven't, for whatever godforsaken <laughs> reason, go watch that fucking movie. Right. Uh, uh, you can, if you have, which if you've gotten this far in the episode, the odds are very high that you watch the movie. Uh, you can tell us what you thought about it on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and Movie TX, Beer and Movie Podcast.com is where you can find a link to listen to all of our past episodes. Uh, go back and listen to them a second time. Prep yourself for episode 100, the extravaganza uh, that will be taking place in. I guess what late July, uh, but I, uh, I, I, I'm glad that my Spike Lee journey is continuing 
and I really, really liked both of these movies. So that's all that I'll say in terms of that. Until next time. Thank you.